Welcome to the Faith Christian Fellowship of Montego Bay's podcast. We are reaching for His glory through building and teaching. I hope you are encouraged and edified by this message. Tonight we will continue, as I said, on the doctrine of Christ. And I'm going to speak more specifically uh, to the necessity of the incarnation. All right, the necessity of the incarnation. I want to speak more directly to that, the necessity of the incarnation. Why was it necessary? So there are two major things that necessitated the incarnation. Two major things that necessitated the incarnation. One is the fall and sinfulness of man. All right, the fall and sinfulness of man. So, The fall and sinfulness of man required a savior uh, and one that was sinless, right? So uh, the savior couldn't be one that was a sinner like us or born with a sin Adamic nature. It required a savior that was of a sinless nature. Hence, um, only God come rescue us and act on our behalf. In fact, in St. John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, saw Jesus and said, Behold, look, here is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So Jesus was identified as that Savior, the one that would take away the sins of the world. But as I said, the, the fact is, uh, and truth, is that Savior had to be sinless. And we want to read a scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that would speak to that to show you that uh, Jesus was sinless. And not only that, but to reinforce the point that uh, we're not just saying it from our lips that it needed to be someone that was sinless and hear it from somebody's mouth, but let's prove it from the scripture. Let's look at the scripture and see what the scripture has to say about that. So it's Hebrews uh, chapter four, verse 15. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest was passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession, that's 14. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be uh, sympathized with all weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so we are seeing from the scripture that Jesus was not just our savior as we say it, but the word is proving that he was without sin, so he was qualified to be our savior. Then number two, the next uh, thing that necessitated the, the, the incarnation. Remember, one is the fall and sinfulness of man, and two is the covenant making and covenant keeping God. When God created man, it was uh, upon the basis of the Edenic covenant, the covenant in Eden. And so that covenant was that man would rule the earth, man would have dominion over the earth by the influence of the kingdom of, of God or in relationship with God. Man was never created to function by himself. That is why Jesus when he was on earth, taught, and he said, without me, you can do nothing. So man was created to operate in covenant with God as he ruled the earth. So in, in a covenant, we have to remember that one party is generally stronger than the other party. One part of the covenant or one, 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 um, end of the covenant covenant generally holds up the other hand. So in our covenant with God, Jesus is definitely 
the stronger party of the covenant. So what is supposed to happen is that if one party is in trouble, the other party should come to the rescue of that um, person because that's what a covenant is about. So when man fell and couldn't help himself by virtue of his integrity and the covenant that he had with mankind, it was necessary for God to come to the rescue of man. Remember, we understand the word of God that God is not slack concerning his promises, as men count slackness, but he is faithful. He keeps his word. And it is the word of God that tells us that a vow is a vow, and it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So God is a God of integrity and always keep his word. So as the stronger a party of the covenant, he came to our rescue. So the fact that God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God means that as creator, he has an obligation to his creatures because his creatures is not, uh, is not supposed to function without him. So when man sinned, God was still obligated by his own will to redeem man. And to state it a little bit more uh, specifically, man sinned and therefore came under what we call the death penalty. So man therefore needed someone to redeem him from death. None of Adam's race could by any means redeem his brother. None of them. No man born after the nature of Adam, the similitude of Adam's transgression, could redeem his brother. So if man was to be redeemed, then a man would have to die for mankind. It couldn't be animals that were would be sacrificed for the redemption of man. A man would have to die, a human would have to die for mankind. And if no man of Adam's race could do this, then only God could redeem man. But God, by his own law, could not redeem man as God. He had to become man to carry out that redemption. So in becoming man, Though it must be understood that he never stopped being God. The only reason he actually became man was for our redemption, to rescue the other party of the covenant that was dying, or that died, really, and that was without hope. So the incarnation was necessitated by, one, the fall and sinfulness of man, and then two, it was also uh, necessitated by the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And if we could really take a chapter out of God's actions like we are supposed to, we would be more faithful to our covenant that we establish here on earth, whether it is our covenant with the Lord whether it is um, our covenant in, in marriage, whether it is our covenant in business or whatever it is, it is important that we honor our covenant and understand that it brings no pleasure to God when we don't honor our side of our covenant. The incarnation was also necessitated by the need to fulfill some Old Testament offices. There were four, uh, primarily four Old Testament, Old Testament offices which shadowed um, the ministry of Christ and which came to, um, which E. Jesus came to fulfill, all right? The, there are about four different offices in the Old Testament that shadowed the the ministry of Christ and which he, Christ, came to fulfill. Because, you know, they were type and shadow in the Old Testament. They were never ever fulfilled in their fullness. They were just type and shadow to lead to 
Christ coming and, um, you know, in, in, in a meaningful way, uh, fulfilling them so that the effect of those offices could be felt on mankind. And the first of those office, offices is the office of the judge. And we're not talking here about the, the, the judge as in the judgment mentioned in Revelations and all of that. But the judges in the Old Testament were deliverers and savior of God's people. They were not perfect. Each of them in their office was, as I said, type and shadow of Christ as the judge, deliverer, and savior. So there was a time in the Old Testament when after the death of Joshua, Israel went into the hands of the judges and the judges provided uh, leadership for the nation of Israel. And they were, as I said, type and shadows of Christ as the judge, deliverer, and savior. Now, I am not saying the judges in the Old Testament were perfect, but their functions were what really typified Christ, not necessarily their life. Their chief function was to deliver Israel from bondage and servitude and the oppression of their enemies and to bring Israel back into relationship with God. Now, this is also Christ's ministry to us. Remember that Jesus came to reconcile man to God, to bring back man into fellowship, into relationship with God. The Bible says in Corinthians that God was in Christ reconciling or bringing back the world unto himself. So the judges typify that and Christ fulfilled that when he came. So that was one of the need, uh, the necessity of uh, the incarnation because Christ in coming to fulfill uh, the office of the judge, judge became our ultimate judge. In other words, the deliverance that he provided is the deliverance that mankind would ultimately have to respond to or suffer eternal consequences. And the Gospel of John particularly presents Christ as judge and savior. I want to read about two scriptures to speak to that. And let's start with St. John 5 verse 19 through 24. And then after that, we will read Judges chapter 2, verse 14. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. Right? That son, of course, remembers Jesus. The father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father uh, who sent him. Life and judgment are through the son. Life and judgment are through the son. So for us to have life, remember that he had to be our savior for us to have life and judgment, justice is uh, through the son. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me as everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or, or into condemnation, one verse, one uh, translation say, but has passed from death to life. So that is very, very strong and powerful there that 
if we believe in Jesus, confess him as Lord and Savior of our lives, we would pass from death to life, meaning that he would have saved us from death. Colossians put it another way, that he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So that's talking about uh, the judge who acted as savior and deliverer. Let's look at Judges chapter 2, verse 14. Christ fulfilling the office of the judge here. Judges chapter 2, and we're going to read Uh, verse number 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So uh, here we're seeing that if we don't walk according to the precepts of the Lord, the understanding of the Lord, then we could face uh, the judgment of God in our lives in the sense that we would not be experiencing his grace. So as deliverer, if you don't accept him as deliverer, you automatically put your side, yourself on the side of uh, his wrath, his judgment in that sense. And that's not somewhere that you want to be at all. So God is asking us, he's calling out to us to come and receive him as deliverer, as savior, so that we can have eternal security in him. Next, he also came to fulfill the office of the prophet. In one verse, he said he did not come to uh, destroy, but to fulfill. The prophets of Israel were God's spokesmen to the people. They came from God, representing him, God, to man. So they rep- the prophets represented God to man. And so in this, they would have foreshadowed Christ who came from God and represented God to man as the final word and the perfect revelation of mankind. So just like the prophets of the Old Testament represented God to man, Jesus came and he carried out that same function to another level. He represented God to man as the final word. In other words, there ain't no more um, revelation coming after him to represent God to mankind. He came as the, the final word. So Jesus Christ was the representative, representative of God to earth when he was on earth. How many scriptures have we read where it says God sent his son? So Jesus was here on behalf of God. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be safe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So all these scriptures are speaking to the fact that Jesus Christ was here representing God. He is the prophet of all prophets. And many scriptures speak to the fact that God sent his son into the world. In fact, let's look at uh, maybe about two of those scriptures. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 16. And then we will look at uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 25. All right, so Luke chapter 10, verse 16, the first scripture we'll look at. We're talking here about how Christ came to fulfill the office of the prophet. And by that, we're talking about as God's representative or spokesman to the people. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. He who hears you, hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. 
and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So right there is telling you that he's not here on his own. He was sent by Jesus, sent by God. And if you reject him, you are rejecting God. And if you reject God, you put yourself in, in bad shape because you would also have uh, rejected eternal life. So again, we confirm there that Christ was God's representative to earth. And if you don't accept God's representative, God's spokesman, if you don't accept him as speaking on behalf of God and respond to God, then you would not just reject the person of Jesus, but you would also reject the Father God. You would have rejected the kingdom of God and you would also have compromised your eternal destiny. So it is very, very important that we listen to what Jesus says. And, you know, just backing up a little bit, this is why in the Old Testament and, and even in the New Testament, the prophets would say things like, thus say the Lord, which is to say that I'm not speaking on behalf of myself, but I'm speaking on behalf of God. So they would say, thus say the Lord. In other words, these words that I'm about to speak, they are God's words. God is speaking through me. Hebrews 12 verse 25. It says, seeing that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Again, it is loud and clear that if you reject the representatives of God, if you don't heed to what um, the representatives of God are saying on behalf of God, you run the risk of being in serious trouble with God. So, you know, in our culture, sometimes we don't want to hear what people have to say on behalf of their managers or so. Sometimes we just don't understand and respond to the protocols and we find ourselves into the manager's office or the principal's office to lobby your own case or to speak for ourselves. God says, if you don't respond to who I send, you have nothing to do with me. If you reject them, you are rejecting me. So it is very important that we pay attention to who God put in our lives as his representative. They might not always say the things that we want to hear, but we have a responsibility if we are in covenant with God to respond to God's representatives. The third office is the office of the priest. As the prophet uh, represented God to man, the priest represented man to God. Right? So that was kind of the main difference between the prophet and the priest in the Old Testament. The prophet represented God to man. The priest represented man to God. And I want to remind you that in the Old Testament, there was the priest and there was the high priest. There were duties that the, the priest carried out, the regular priest, that um, was just limited to, to that order. But there were other functions that the high priest carried out that was only um, the, that only the high priest could actually carry out those functions. So the regular priest could make uh, offer certain sacrifices, especially in the outer court and all of that. But when he came to the holy of holies, only the high priest could actually go into the holy of holies. Not even the regular priest. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So the priest, regular priest made atonement on behalf of the people and stood um, between God and, the, and, 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 and man or represented man to God in some cases. But the high priest was the one that really made 
the more serious atonement. He would go into the Holy of Holies once per year, representing the people before God. Now, the qualification, anointing, and, cons and the consecration of the priests to bear their function in the Old Testament typified the qualification, anointing, and consecration of Christ as our great high priest. As I said before, in the Old Testament, you have, we would have the priest and the high priest, but Jesus Christ came as the great high priest above all of those to make a sacrifice to God on behalf of man, unlike uh, was ever seen uh, in the earth before. So it's interesting because Jesus Christ both represented God to man and represented man to God because he was both prophet and priest. In fact, he was the only one that fulfilled all of those three offices in the Old Testament. Because remember, in the Old Testament, the anointing was only on three kinds of people, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus was, was all of them. He was prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to read a scripture in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and read about Jesus as our great high priest. Not just merely priest or high priest, but our great high priest. It says, therefore, he, therefore, sorry, he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For Look at verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So he is able to save because as high priest, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. What, what does intercession mean? Intercession means you are bringing uh, a case before God. What case is our high priest, our great high priest Jesus bringing before God? Your case. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. So our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is constantly talking to God on your behalf. So when you get angry and don't even realize what is happening, here is our great high priest talking to God on your behalf. When you sin, and that sin could really bring judgment on your life in a way that you wouldn't imagine, here is the great high priest talking to God on your behalf. He's representing man to God. Ever live it to make intercession for the saints. Aren't you glad that the great high priest is talking to God on your behalf and that he is your great high priest? The office of the king, number four. So he came to fulfill the office of the judge, the office of the prophet, the office of the priest and the office of the king. The kings of Israel and Judah, though imperfect in character and deed, shadowed forth the Lord Jesus Christ as king of kings and lord of lords. You see, the king was the ruler in Israel, the ruler over the people. The prophets speak on behalf of God when God gives him a word. The priests speak uh, to God on behalf of man, but the prophet was the ruler over uh, the people. And so the king is the ruler, and that was what bothered most of those religious people about Jesus. They didn't have a problem with him being priest. Of course, they would want to take off the connotation of great high priest, but they didn't have a problem with people even calling him prophet or judge. But it was an issue whenever he was referred to as king. That was a cord that 
created problems because the Jews rejected his rulership and Jesus would not be intimidated about his kingship. In fact, in St. John chapter 19, there's an interesting um, discourse there of the trial of Jesus. It was the trial of uh, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says through Isaiah, uh, Isaiah prophesied that he was brought as a lamb, lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before a shearer is dumb. He opened not his mouth. Jesus was quiet through the whole trial. They, they boxed him, they mocked him, they, they struck him. Um, they did all kinds of stuff to him. They discouraged him. He was quiet through the whole trial. Until Pilate struck a wrong chord. It's interesting. That, that's the only thing that got Jesus talking. Pilate said to him, aren't you going to answer me the questions that I'm asking you? And then went on to say, don't you know that I have power to release you or to condemn you? In other words, I exercise power over you. And Jesus couldn't keep quiet through that part of it. He had to declare to Pilate. He said, listen, you have no power over me. Because, you see, that's what's the issue with the Jewish people. In fact, they uh, condemned Jesus and crucified him on the account of treason, saying that he said he was king. And Pilate now came saying, I have power over you. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You have no power over me. In fact, I, I could hear Jesus saying, you know what, Pilate? Just hurry up and do your job and get me killed. And and cut out that kind of argument because you have no power over me. My power is from heaven and ain't no power higher than that power. In other words, the only reason why I'm here before you is because I'm rescuing the next party of this covenant. And the only way to do it is to come and die for mankind. And this is the route to do it. So, at all times, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is none beside him. We want to read two scriptures relating to that from Psalm 2. Read about a few verses there, uh, maybe about four or five verses from Psalm 2. And we also want to read from Revelations 15 verse 3. So Psalm 2 is the first one. And then we'll come upon Revelations chapter 3. It says, why do the heathen rage? Or why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set them, themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Uh, the Lord shall owe them in the region. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. I will declare and decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Let's read a few more verses. Ask of me, he said. And I will give you the nations for an inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him, in him who the king of Zion. So he said, ask of me. If you ask of me, I'll give you the kings of the earth. I'll give you the nations. 
as an inheritance. In other words, it doesn't matter how you see people are raging and carrying on. If you settle in God and understand that the King of Kings is working on your behalf, if you settle in him, he said, I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. You remember how the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and all of them were going on in Canaan? They look intimidating to the spies that went, but God fulfilled his word and gave Israel the Eden as an inheritance. Revelations chapter 15, verse 3. It says in verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. So we honor him, we recognize him as the king of the saints. He is our king. In other words, as I said, king means ruler. So he is our ruler, or put it this way, he is our authority. We function by his authority. So Jesus Christ combines in himself all these Old Testament offices as judge, Christ is God's savior and deliverer to us, as prophet, God is Christ's word to us, as priest, Christ is God's mediator, advocate, and intercessor on our behalf. And as king, Christ is God's ruler and authority over us. And I want to read one more scripture as it relates to that from Revelation 19, verse 16. And then we will uh, just I'll share a few more things and we close out. And he has on his, on his robe and on his tie the name written. I, I want to just back up to verse 13 so you can get, um, sorry, verse, let me back up to verse 11 so you can get um, a really backdrop of this situation. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and his head were many on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Of iron. He himself thread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty or Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of kings and Lord of lords, the beast and his armies defeated. Now, the king that we subject to as authority over our lives is not just a king, but he's the king of all kings. There, are, there have been some awesome kings on the earth since the creation of man, but none of them compares to King Jesus. He is the king of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. All will subject and have to subject themselves to him. Now, there were only two men in scripture whose temptations were considered unique. Those two men we speak of are Adam and Jesus. The Bible says in James that there is no temptation taken us that is not common to man. And so all men have common temptations, so to speak. But Jesus and Adam had unique uh, temptations. 
And interestingly, both were sons of God in a unique sense. Adam was the created son of God, while Jesus was the begotten son of God. The only two that were sons in a unique way. As I said, Adam was the created son. Remember, Adam wasn't born of a woman. He was the created son. Jesus was the begotten son, where um, again, it was the hand of God that caused the conception in Mary's womb that uh, produced Jesus. So um, both had a sinless human nature at birth. Uh, not having any sin principle within their being. In other words, while all of us were born with the sin Adamic nature because of Adam's transgression, Adam and Jesus were different. Adam was born with no sin nature in him. He developed that when he uh, submitted the authority to the devil. Jesus, because he is not from the Adamic nature, was also born with a sinless nature. So Adam and Jesus were what we call a federal heads or representatives of men of the old creation and also of the new creation. Of course, Adam that was uh, the created, was created in Genesis, he represents the head of the old creation, while Jesus represents the head of the new creation. And God sees all men in Adam or in Christ. If you are in Adam, then it speaks to life eternal for you. If you are in Adam, then you are in sin. God sees all men in Adam or in Christ. And in fact, I never plan on reading the scripture, but I want to read the scripture just to point out something. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 46 to 47. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 46, 47. It says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual, the first man was of earth, made of dust. That's talking about the Adam created in Genesis, beginning of the old creation. And the second man is Lord from heaven. And that's talking about what we call the last Adam. If I said, is not the second Adam, is the, is the last Adam. So this last Adam heads the new creation. So I'm showing you that the Bible actually distinguish both of them in terms of um, one being, being the first man was of earth and made of dust. The second man was of, was Lord from heaven. And let's read verse 48. And was the man of dust, so also, as, sorry, as, the, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of man of dust, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the heavenly man, the image of the heavenly man, our final victory. As I said, God sees all men in Adam or in Christ. He's saying, if you are in the man from heaven, then you have a heavenly future. If you are in the man from earth, the first Adam, then you, you have a, a different future. But we all know that we want to be identified as um, in the last Adam, the man from heaven, so we have a future with our Father God. Now, all these facts place the temptation of Adam and Jesus in direct distinction from the temptations of all men born of Adam uh, since the fall. All other men born of Adam's race are 
tempted as sinners born in sin. None of them knew what it is to experience temptation in a state of sinfulness. That's the uniqueness of Adam and Jesus' temptation. Both of them experienced temptation in a state of sinlessness. So when Adam was tempted by the devil, Adam and Eve, they were in a state of sinlessness. They knew what it is to be completely righteous, not having a sin nature, and could have maintained that, but yielded to the temptation. Jesus also faced temptation in a state of sinlessness, but he overcame the temptation. So the last Adam, Jesus Christ, experienced temptation in a state of sinlessness and overcame. And that is why if you and I are going to be victorious in this life, it will have to be in Christ Jesus because he overcame. And because he overcame, we can overcame, overcome. That is why when you read the New Testament, you will hear a lot of the writers quoting things about in Christ or through Christ. So Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he's the one that overcomes. So he can enable us to overcome. Again, God sees all men either in Christ or in Adam. If you are in Christ, we can say, thanks be to God who always gives us the victory. So when Jesus was tempted in that state of sinlessness, brothers and sisters, the devil gave it his very best to get Jesus to sin. And, to, and, and because if he could get Jesus to sin, that would seal man as condemned because Jesus was the last Adam. It means that man would not be able to really win victory over sin and victory in life because Jesus would have sinned. So he, he pulled out every stop. He begged Jesus to worship him. He wanted Jesus to sin, to condemn man's future. But thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph and gives us the victory through, throughout our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can overcome sin. We can overcome death. We can overcome the circumstances in life because you and I are identified as being in Christ. And that's a status that we need to keep and to continue to work on and declare that in Christ, I can do all things. That he is our hope. And the only way this, all of this could happen was for Christ to come as man and demonstrate to us that it was possible to prove that victory could be won over sin. I want to just share a few things as it relates to uh, contrast between contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. Just show you a few differences, and we close there. Well, as you know, the first Adam was the one created in Genesis. The last Adam was the one begotten of uh, begotten of God through Mary. He's the begotten son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. The last Adam, sorry, the first Adam had one nature, which was the human nature. The last Adam had two natures, human and divine, but he overcame as human, as man, so that we can overcome. We really don't have time to get into that uh, some more tonight. Another time we'll get into that. The first Adam was a creation of God. The last Adam was the incarnation of God. So the first Adam was a creation of God. The last Adam was the incarnation of God. The first Adam was a created son of God. The last Adam was a begotten son of God. The first Adam was a created son of God. The last Adam 
as a begotten son of God. First Adam was a human being. Last Adam was a divine human being. In Adam, as in the first Adam, we're sons of men. In Christ, we are sons of God. All right? So in Adam, as in the first Adam, we're sons of men. But in Christ, the last Adam, we're sons of God. Through Adam, the first Adam, we experience natural birth. But through the last Adam, Christ, we experience spiritual birth. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So when you're born via the first Adam, that's one birth. But when you're born through the last Adam, it's a different thing. I repeat that God sees all men in Adam or in Christ. You need to do everything that is possible to maintain your status in Christ. Because it is in Christ that you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That can't happen through the first Adam. The privileges that you have, the access that you have, the um, kind of things that are at your disposal through the last Adam, they are not available through the first Adam. So one of the things that you should do when next you read through the New Testament, and especially the book of Ephesians, is to highlight, underline if you use the paper Bible or they use electronic ones, highlight all the places that it talks about who you are in Christ. That helps with your identity and that helps you to um, understand how great and precious promises you have in Christ. God bless. We thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you and have a great day. You may contact us by email at fcfmontegobay at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at fcfmobay and on Facebook at fcfmontegobay.com.